Yeah, I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 25 through 42. There was a South African Dutch Reformed pastor in the 18th century named Andrew Murray. He wrote over 250 books. And his basic philosophy behind each of those books and each of those leaflets that he, he did tracts and all sorts of things was cast myself on Christ in all things. So he, he gave us, in, in the middle of all that, he provided for us a near perfect definition of humility. So I'm, I'm going to read this to you. It's a little lengthy, but stick with me for just a minute. Murray said, humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around me and above is trouble. And then he ends with this. The humble person is not the one who thinks meanly of himself, who thinks little of himself. He simply does not think of himself at all. What an incredible definition of humility. But I think we're going to have to admit to ourselves, if we're going to mine the truths in our passage today, I think we're going to have to admit to ourselves that humility is hard. We don't like it. I don't like having to humble myself. It's a very difficult thing to do. And it's our truth for today. Humility is hard. Let's just, let's just admit it, that this is a hard thing to do. Praise God that we have that helper that, that John told us about, that we have somebody to help us, to, to remind us when we need to be humble, when we need to make that conscious effort to humble ourselves. So last week, we heard about, what do I have to be joyful about? And what we found out was, we should be joyful in our eternal relationship with Christ. Joyful that we have a home that we're going to. Joyful that somebody surrendered their lives so that we could be back in relationship with our Father in heaven. And not to be troubled by worldly things. And not to allow our worldly situation or the people around us to rob us of that eternal joy. We can be robbed of temporary joy here. Our circumstances can be difficult. We can grieve over some loss. And there, there's nothing wrong with that. That's part of life. So part of life is going through some hurts and some trials and some tribulation. But our eternal joy and our life perspective is based on the relationship we have with Christ. So this week, Jesus is, is he's shown his disciples, I mean, this is a, a progression here. I'll get to it in just a second. But he's going to show his disciples what a closer walk with him looks like and how it should affect the way that they look at the people around them. Now, let me ask you something. Do you ever have difficulty looking at the people around you and, and being godly? No, you guys don't struggle with that. <laughs> I do. I do. I, you know, there are people, 
There are people that cause a knot in my stomach when I see them. I have preconceptions about people. I have a tendency to stereotype people. I don't like that. I don't like that about myself, but it happens. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all have that tendency to look at somebody and kind of shape them up and go, I know how this person is, and I'm going to put them over in this slot, and that will be my level of expectation from them. So Jesus is going to show them that, that there's a different way to look at people. So the title of our sermon today is Choose the Good Portion, and we're going to see, we're going to see all these lessons play out in the tales of three people. We've got, John mentioned them, we've got the lawyer in verses 25 through 28, we have the Samaritan in verses 29 through 37, and we have a woman in verses 38 through 42. So let's take a look, let's take a look at this lawyer. And remember our context. Jesus has begun showing the disciples that they are the ones that are going to do the work of the ministry, that he's going to hand it over to them. He sent them out. He told them to be totally dependent upon him, but he's given them power and authority. And he's given them power and authority like no one has ever had before. And that power and authority, or the power and authority, watch this carefully, to teach and portray the kingdom of God. There are other things that come along with that. And as a situation arises, that power and authority may work through us. But the ultimate goal of the power and authority the disciples have is to teach and portray the kingdom of God. And he's also begun to teach them to keep their eyes on their relationship with him. Keep their eyes on eternity, not on the power and authority that they have, and not on the things of this world. So Jesus has given his disciples, the nature of their calling and the vital importance of their relationship with him. Those are the two primary lessons that he's taught so far in Luke 9 and 10. And now, if we read the parallel passage in Matthew 22, we find out that he's about to have a confrontation with some Pharisees. And in it, he puts on a demonstration to the disciples of what their relationships should look like with each other and with everyone else in the world. So, starting with verse 25, behold a lawyer. Now, this lawyer is not what we would traditionally call a lawyer. It's basically a scribe. And so, generally in the New Testament, lawyer and scribe are going to be interchangeable. So, behold now, he's in the presence of a group of Pharisees. Disciples are there, and this lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, that's the first thing that we need to see about this passage, that this lawyer is not looking for information. He's not there to be taught by Jesus Christ. He's there to test him. He's not looking for an answer. He's there to test him. And there's some baggage that goes along with that. And, and he says, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, here's some background on this. He's a Pharisee. So he believes that there will be a resurrection of the righteous. The Sadducees did not believe in that. So he believed that the, there's a resurrection for, for, uh, of the righteous. And he's really asking, how can I be sure that I will be included in that resurrection? If we were to reframe that question today, it would be, how can I be sure I'm saved? Now, those things occur to us all the time. He's asking the same thing. Now, he's not looking for the assurity of his salvation. He's testing Jesus Christ. So Jesus said to him, 
What is written in the law, and how do you read it? Now, watch what happened. He didn't answer him. He said, well, I don't know. What do you read in Scripture? How do you, how do you interpret what you read in Scripture? And so Jesus wants this lawyer who is intimately familiar with Scripture to think a little bit more deeply than what he has been thinking about what the Scriptures say and how to apply them. So instead of answering the question, he refers to what they both see as an authority. Now there's something a little deeper going on here as well. Jesus is saying, you value the law, I value the law. We have a common meeting place, and it's in these scriptures that you're reading that you're trying to test me on. So we'll hear the scribe's answer in just a moment, but I just want to stop for a second and ask you, how do you answer that question? How do you know if you're saved? I mean, it, 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 it's something that weighs down upon almost all of us at some time or another. And somebody will quote this bit of scripture over here and that bit of scripture over there and say, oh, you don't have to worry about it. You know, you're sealed and put away. And, oh, no, wait a minute, if you don't do this and you don't do that. And, and we can get confused pretty easily. So the question that the lawyer is asking is a question for the ages. How do I know that when I die, I will be raised up with Jesus Christ? And there's all sorts of teachings on it that if you haven't repented from every sin you've ever committed and been exactly, precisely about it, then you're not saved, you're not going to heaven. You know, well, I don't know if you guys have the same picture of heaven that I do, but I see Peter standing at the gate. He's got a clipboard. And you're waiting to get in, and he says, yeah, no, you stole that Tootsie Roll when you were three years old, and you never repented. I'm sorry you can't come in. Some people see salvation like that, that I have to be perfect. Some people assume that they already are, and might end up in front of Peter with him going, well, you know, you never really repented. I mean, you never really received Jesus Christ as Savior. That seems to be the criteria for salvation, amen? Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, uh, salvation through Him alone, by faith alone, by grace alone. We repent, we receive eternal life. So Jesus wants this lawyer, and He wants you and me to think a little bit more deeply about this. He's saying, well, you know, there is a way that you can know. Let me hear what you think first, He says to the lawyer. Now, the lawyer, you need to understand, the lawyer is arrogant. He's confronting Jesus. He's coming to Jesus as an authority on the law. And he's saying, let me see if your interpretation of scriptures match my interpretation of scriptures. Now, we need to see what's behind that because the only acceptable interpretation is the scribes. So Jesus doesn't answer the question. But he gives us an answer. Verse 27. And he answered, You shall love, now this is a lawyer, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer gives him the Sunday school answer. You know, if, if you grew up in church and youth group and Sunday school, you know the answer to every question is Jesus. 
lawyer didn't know that because he didn't know Jesus was standing in front of him. So he gives them the standard answer that everybody's supposed to give in this case. But let's look at it a little closer. What does loving God with all your heart mean? Oh, I love God with all my heart. What does that mean? It's a hard question. But whatever it means, however you interpret your love of God, it has to result in your loving your neighbor. They're inextricably intertwined. Want to know if you're going to be resurrected? Love God with everything you have. And the way that looks is loving your neighbor. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> what Jesus is saying, and in, in, in what, what the guy just read, is that the love, mercy, and compassion of God that he has for your neighbor. Now, how do we know God loves our neighbor? For he so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whosoever believes in him should have eternal life. So loved who? The world. Now, see, now we're getting a little tough with how we apply this Sunday school answer to our lives. The love of God, our love for God, filters back through us to the people around us. So Jesus says to this guy in verse 28, you know, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Well, that sounds easy. But what is unsaid here is a foundational biblical principle. It's this. If you get the first half of this thing correct, if you love God with all your soul, mind, and strength, then the second half is going to flow from you naturally. You will love your neighbor. Now, it might not necessarily rise up in us naturally. I think we have to work at this. We'll talk about that. But with the help and the leading of the Holy Spirit, we can love our neighbor. Okay, well, I love the people that sit next door to me. I really don't know them all that well. Uh, but I love them. I got that one covered. Do I? <laughs> Truth of the matter is that once we realize that we're supposed to love our neighbor, other questions arise, don't they? We begin thinking, well, wait a minute. Do, do we have to love our neighbor? Loving our neighbor can be very hard to do. Anybody sympathize with that? It can be hard to do. But we have to love our neighbor. What, what, if, what if they're unlovable? What if, we're, what if we're in our neighborhood next to the neighborhood curmudgeon? Some people think that's me in our neighborhood. What if they're unlovable? And furthermore, what does God even mean by neighbor? Who's he talking about? Is he talking about the folks next door? I mean, uh, the folks on the other side of them, do I not have to love them? Does it only go as far as my yard, the borders of my yard? See, our minds begin looking for a way out of this. 
We begin to, to negotiate with God. Don't, don't, don't we do that? This is exactly what the lawyer's doing. Jesus has challenged him to look a little bit more deeply into his faith and how he expresses it to the outside world. And the lawyer doesn't like it. He doesn't like being challenged. He doesn't like having to go deeper. The lawyer might be one of the people who says, give me the cut and dried. Tell me the black and white. Tell me seven things I can do to be a better Christian. Don't talk to me about who I have to love and who I can't love. It takes us to the story of the Samaritan. Verse 29, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, if I had to put the right inflection in this, it would be, and who do you think is my neighbor? Just tell me who you want me to love. He wants Jesus to quantify the neighbor phrase. He's really asking, is who do you want me to love? Just point to the people you want me to love, and I'll do that. And then I can check off the second half of this little saying. Jesus replies in verse 30. I mean, this is just so Jesus. You know, the lawyer keeps asking questions, and Jesus just keeps on going, ah, let's talk about this a little bit. Let's think about this. Let me give you something to consider here for a second. So, a man was going down from Jerusalem, Jesus says, to Jericho. Now, the road to Jericho, uh, I was there not too long ago, uh, and it, it's, it's desolate. Uh, it's... Uh, there's nothing there. Um, sometimes it runs along the top of a ridge. That's what we have here. Um, it, it is rocky. It is hilly. It changes in elevation about 4,000 feet going from, from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It's about 20 miles long, so there are areas in it that are very steep, and it is extremely dangerous. It is particularly dangerous if you travel alone. So, Jesus has this story about this man on the road to Jericho, and apparently he was alone. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Thieves and robbers, some people would, the word here for robbers is kind of akin to terrorists, uh, would hide out in the caves and, and the nooks and the crannies along the road and jump out and, and attack even a caravan. But generally, if you were alone, you were pretty much in danger on the road to Jericho. And so they descend on this man, and they beat him up, and uh, he's almost dead, and he's lying there beside the road. Verse 31, now by chance, a priest. So here we have a Jewish leader, a man of God, a man who ministers in the temple. And this man is the pinnacle, the absolute highest form of piety that the Jewish culture has. He's the tip of the iceberg when it comes to being a holy person. Okay, so this priest was going down that road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, we don't want to be too difficult on this. It, it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily that he's callous. Uh, he may be a priest. It may be that if he touches this man, he becomes unclean. Um, there's some evidence that that wasn't the case. He was by himself. He'd probably already served in the temple. He was going down to Jericho. 
uh, priests could walk along the road in a relatively safe manner. Most people could tell by the way they wore their clothes that they were priests. And very few were willing to attack a priest. I remember I, I had to fly out to Colorado Springs one year and I was going to a retreat uh, in Colorado Springs and flew into Denver and I was driving about 40 miles to the south from the Denver airport to Colorado Springs and I pulled into a rest stop and there's two shady looking guys there standing at the exit and one of the guys steps in the car and flags me down and he said look we're really stuck uh, we, I, I got to get down to where are you headed and I'm like uh, well where are you going and he said, Colorado Springs. I said, I'm going to Colorado Springs, jump in. So they both sit in the back seat. And we get out on Route 20, and one guy in the back says, so, thanks for picking us up. Most people wouldn't pick up two guys that are looking for a ride at a rest stop in a remote area. And the other guy goes, yeah, that could be dangerous. And the first guy goes, yeah, you know, you never know what might happen. Nice watch you have. And the other guy goes, yeah, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. He went, what? <laughs> I said, I'm a pastor. I've got angels watching over me. And the other guy said, can we get out here? <laughs> so, so this is kind of like the priest on the road to Jericho. He can go by himself without any danger. And so he sees the guy, and he passes him by. As a matter of fact, he goes to the other side of the road to pass him by. So there might have been a good excuse. We don't know. I mean, the primary excuse for not stopping was it could be a trap. They would do that. They'd put somebody out by the side of the road, and when somebody went over to see if they could help them, the other guys would jump out, and they'd beat them and take all their stuff. So the priest passes by, and in verse 32, so likewise a Levite. Now you need to see what's happening here because we have two Jewish leaders, two religious leaders, and the Levite is dedicated to serving the priests. He's kind of like the priest's assistant. They do the things around the temple, the menial duties that the priest doesn't want to occupy themselves with. So the Levite is in a much better position to help the man than the priest was. When he came to the place and saw him, now, saw him means that he actually went over and took a closer look. He passed by on the other side. Here are the two primary representatives of Judaism. People called to be a blessing to the nations, a blessing to the world. And neither one of them responds to the, the help that this man needs. Matter of priorities. We have things we have to do. It could be a trap. What comes first? My religious obligations, my piety, my safety, or this poor guy that's probably going to die any moment anyway. What's more important? Me and my personal preferences or mercy? Or mercy. And what Jesus portrays right here is an overall indictment of Judaism. He said, this is, what, this is what God's people have become. You know, they were the teachers. 
they were the leaders. And if we all know anything about the world, we know that the leaders lead sometimes consciously and just as frequently subconsciously. And this is what they were leading their people into. Don't help them, it could be dangerous. There could be some personal cost involved in this. I'm not going to jeopardize that. I don't even know who he is. So Jesus shows the right answer in an incredibly unusual way. What should have happened here? In verse 33, he says, but a Samaritan. Now, this is hard for us to understand because that word would have reverberated through the lawyer and the Pharisees like a mini earthquake. The ground beneath them would be shaking. A Samaritan. Now, if I were writing this story, I would not have used a Samaritan. I would have used a lay person, a Jew. And I would have used that lay person to embarrass the religious, pious people. But Jesus has got something else in mind here. He's teaching something more profound. Who is this Samaritan? This person is unclean in the Jewish eyes. He is absolutely despised. He's filthy. He's lower than the lowest of all. He's hated. And even worse than that, the Samaritan is an enemy. What happens? The Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. The word for compassion is he's deeply moved. He's touched down to his core. He's saying to himself, I can't just pass by. I can't just let him lie here. And so the Jews who see the Samaritan as an enemy can't even imagine that the Samaritan would have a modicum of compassion. But it's there. And it goes further, verse 34. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him at the, to an inn and took care of him. So I want you to think about this man's situation. He's not just a traveler. He's a Samaritan on the road to Jericho. He's in just as much danger as the guy lying beside the, the, the road is. Matter of fact, maybe more so because he's a Samaritan. The area is dark. The area is dangerous. There are thieves all over the place. And he is an undesirable. Puts the guy on his horse. He takes him to an inn. Verse 35, and the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay when I came back. Now there were standard rates for the inns back then and he had given the innkeeper enough to keep the man for 24 days. So that'd be like you or me taking somebody down to Holiday Inn and saying, I'd like, I'd like to pay for a month's room for this, this person while they recuperate. And if there's any other expenses, when I come back, I'll take care of that. I'm talking thousands of dollars. So in verse 36, Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he, the lawyer, said, the one who showed him mercy, I suppose. I want you to notice that the lawyer can't even conjure up the word Samaritan. And that's an indication of how despised these people were. And Jesus said to him, 
you go and do likewise. He said, you, Mr. Lawyer, Mr. Expert on the law, you, Mr. Who wants to know how he can be assured that he has an eternal place in heaven, go be like a Samaritan. Whoa. You go show mercy even to your enemy. See, we forget in this story that the guy lying beside the road is a Samaritan's enemy. They had as much animosity for the Jews as the Jews had for the Samaritans. So this whole parable turns around this question of the lawyer who asked who his neighbor was in hopes of having some strong ethical demand of the law satisfied in his own mind. And Jesus answers with this exhortation to do as a Samaritan has done. And what he says, you know, you want to know who your neighbor is. The godly person isn't as concerned about whom we serve as he is about the fact that he serves. You're called to be a server. You're called to serve even the people you hate. We're not supposed to ask who our neighbor is. We're supposed to be a neighbor. See, this is why, this is why Jesus chose a Samaritan story. He, I mean, he's telling a much better story than I would have told. <laughs> he chose a Samaritan said, because the Jews disliked the Samaritan so much and would never have imagined that a Samaritan could be one of their neighbors. So in fact, Jesus is kind of saying, you know, you ask who your neighbor is, the answer might surprise you. This might be a little startling. So we're supposed to look at the Samaritan in a new light in view of this story. He's more godly than these self-righteous, pious religious people. Wait, wait a minute. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Because a Samaritan, how can a Samaritan be more godly than me? Sometimes we look at people that way. Well, they're not godly people. They don't do things the way I do them. I mean, this is pretty easy. We could see we have a problem when we look at the, the Muslims and say, they're not godly people. They're not my neighbor. I don't have to love them. But it also creates an obstacle for us when we're looking at people of other denominations, doesn't it? Wait a minute. They don't sing music the way we do. They don't read the same translation we do. I don't think they're godly people. Well, you know what? They may not be. That does not exempt us from treating them as a neighbor. See, that's the answer that the lawyer was looking for. They're not godly. Don't worry about them. They're actually the mission field, right? Jesus wants his disciples to know that we should love God with everything we have and the byproduct of our love for God will manifest itself in a love for others. Not just people like us, but maybe our enemies, maybe, maybe people that are 
drastically not like us. And that requires humility. Oh, now, now we're beginning to understand how hard humility can be, aren't we? Humility is hard. Let's talk about this woman, verse 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Now, Martha is the older of two sisters. Um, she's got a sister named Mary. Martha's responsibility, you know, Jesus is coming to town. There's probably more people in Martha's house than there ever has been before. And Martha's responsibility is to make sure that she extends hospitality to these people. That's how the culture worked. So, Martha welcomed Jesus and his entourage into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who, who, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching? <laughs> well, if the story about the Samaritan is surprising, this one is even more shocking. Mary is sitting at the Lord's feet, drinking in every word, acting, acting like, like a disciple. Oh, wait a minute. You know, in the culture, women could hear Torah, the word of God. They could hear it in the synagogue. They could occasionally sit down and listen to a teacher's uh, lectures. They weren't allowed to make a habit of it, okay? Uh, they weren't taught by rabbis in their schools, Boys were schooled in reciting Torah. Girls were not. There was an exceptional rare woman from time to time that would learn Torah from their family. And so the people gather in Martha's house, and here's Mary adopting the posture of a student, adopting the posture of a disciple. She's not just sitting at his feet. She's in the preferred seat. And you could see, I don't know about this, okay? But we're not concentrating on that. We're concentrating on Martha, who's struggling. Martha's doing what she's supposed to do. You know, she's in the kitchen. The pots and pans are rattling and everything. There's flour all over her face. And she, she Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him, up to Christ, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Now, there's four things going on here. We need to recognize what they are. Number one, she accuses the Lord of being insensitive to her needs. Don't you see that I need help? I mean, he's the authority in the house. Everybody's came to listen to him. He's the reason that she's got this crowd and has to do all this work. And he doesn't even recognize that she's doing it all by herself. And what she's really saying to Jesus Christ is, don't you care? Don't you care about me? Second thing, she feels neglected. She feels alone. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like somebody didn't appreciate the efforts that you put into something? Did you ever, did you ever do something and think that, gosh, I really put a lot into this. I bet people are going to respond fantastically. Do you ever feel alone in what you're doing? This is how Martha feels. The third thing is, she presumes that the Lord sees the injustice in what's going on. She presumes 
that the Lord is on her side. She's kind of making the same mistake that the lawyer was making. Okay? Here's the fourth thing. And this might be the biggest. Because of all these things. Because, because she feels neglected. Because she feels like the Lord doesn't care. Because she presumes that the Lord is on her side. She then tells Jesus what to do. The Messiah's in my home. The community's here. And he needs my advice. He needs some direction. You know, it can be excused. He's a very busy man. He's got a lot of teaching going on. And without me here to tell him what to do, he could embarrass himself. So she's going to protect Jesus. So, and, and, and here's what happens, because... Telling the Lord what we think he should do always kind of ends up with, well, Lord, now that I've got your ear, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. And that's what Martha does. She's storming out into the living room, wherever they are, and responding to all of her emotions, responding to her situation. She is absolutely indignant. She's doing everything that a woman is expected to do. Mary is not doing anything but sitting there and insisting on learning. Instead of learning, Mary should be helping Martha. 41. But the Lord answered. And there, there's compassion here. She says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. What a day to hear that. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Jesus is saying the best thing Mary can be doing right now and maybe you as well, Martha, is slowing down and listening to my words. There's going to be plenty of time to do all this work and everything. But before we engage in all that work, we need to be equipped by the teachings of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. Otherwise, it's just going to get more and more anxious for you. Mary knows the good portion. She's got it. She knows that the good portion will make all the work and all the busyness fall into line. So we've, we've had these three people. We've got the lawyer Refused to humble himself before Jesus. He wasn't going to do it. Tried to test him to show that he was smarter. And far from being humble, he was arrogant. He was prideful. He misses the lesson. We have this Samaritan who humbled himself completely. He gave up his food. He gave up his water. He had to walk next to his horse or his donkey, whatever it was. Probably made bandages for this injured man from his clothing. He wasn't walking around with a safety aid safety kit so he probably ripped his clothes up to make bandages for him he gave him his own money he showed compassion to an enemy he humbled himself completely and we have the woman Mary who knew that all the good works in the world and busyness wouldn't mean a thing unless she humbly first sat at the feet of Jesus and admitted that there were things that she needed to learn 
She risked embarrassing herself by not providing the hospitality that was expected. She risked her sister being upset. I'm sure that wasn't a surprise to Mary. So she could be with Jesus. So she could learn what he was teaching. Martha, arrogant enough to tell Jesus what to do. Mary was humble enough. Now watch this. Throughout the entire passage, Mary never says a word. You never hear from Mary. Mary is absolutely content to sit there and learn and allow Jesus to handle the situation. Doesn't sit there and go, you tell him, Jesus. (laughs) I did the good thing. Three character studies. A proud lawyer, a humble Samaritan, and a humble Mary. What a lesson. The godly people in all in these three stories here, watch this. They're outcasts. They're people that are marginalized. They're people that are minimized. So the, the ones who receive the blessings are the despicable ones, the ones who are shoved off into the corner, the ones who, who most people feel don't have much to contribute. As a matter of fact, in at least one case, they're the enemy. They receive the blessings and the proud, falsely religious ones, well, they don't get any blessing. They show no mercy. Scripture tells us they receive none. So the one vital lesson that Jesus wants to show his disciples after telling them that you're going to do the work and I'm going to empower you to do the work and you're going to have this tremendous power and authority and you need to keep your your eyes on me, keep your eyes on eternity, he says, and be humble. Be humble about this. But humility is hard. In order for us to, to give up and humble ourselves, we have to give up defending ourselves. We have to give up insisting on our way. We have to give up telling God what to do. We have to give up being indignant to the situations around us. We have to learn from Christ and his word. And like Andrew Murray, and all, of, all this requires us to cast ourselves upon Christ in everything that we do. He is our strength. He is our rest. Vengeance is his. Brothers and sisters, and so are we. We belong to him. And he calls us to humble ourselves so that other people can see God in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. It's a difficult lesson, Lord. And it's one that can make us uncomfortable. It's one that can make us uncomfortable as we move through this world that you've put us in, as we move through these situations that you've placed around us, Father, as we go through COVID, as we go through election results, as we go through a new administration, as we go through tension almost everywhere we turn, Father, we, you call us to be humble. And we pray that by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, that we might be able to do that, that we would have new eyes to see the people around us, see the way you see them, Father, to see our neighbors and to be those messengers that you call us to be. And we pray this in the precious, holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.